We've been studying the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is teaching on the mountain. Okay, that's where it comes from. So, so Jesus goes up here and, and he starts to teach and he's laying out basically what it looks like to live in his kingdom. Although, I'm not sure that's all that he's doing. We've been talking about it kind of in that, in that aspect uh, through the teaching so far, but I, I don't think that's everything. There's more to come on that. We'll, we'll hit that later on. But what you see in his teaching is it's a mixture of both vertical and horizontal relationships. Okay? Vertical, those between you and God, horizontal relationships between you and other people. A vertical examples that we've seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount is when we talk through the Lord's Prayer. Like, how are you engaging with, with God? What are you asking for? And what is he, what is he offering? What is he bringing? Um, giving to God, fasting, the proper place of judgment, and total reliance on Him. Those are all vertical relationships, okay? Connections between you and God. And the Sermon on the Mount also covers some horizontal relationships, being salt and light. Are you, are you actually bringing light into people's lives? And in places where there is darkness, does, do people that love Jesus bring light into that scenario? Okay? It talks about forgiveness, giving to the needy, being people that actively pursue and make peace. Okay? Those are your horizontal relationships. And this is an expected combination. You guys remember when we first started talking about the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things I said was, is that you're, you're getting an image here of kind of the Old Testament law. This big bogeyman of an Old Testament law where, where Moses climbs the mountain and Jesus, or, uh, God gives out the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments okay? and the other things that he wants his people to follow. And, and remember, that's an identity issue. Okay? He's giving his people identity. This is who God is. This is what he wants from his people. Okay? And so you have God giving this information down to Moses, who then is to take it down and spread it amongst the people. On the Sermon on the Mount, you have this same kind of typology where Jesus is God because, you know, he is. And he's giving this information to his disciples who would then take it out into the people. Okay? It's, it's Jesus' Torah, his, his book of law that we otherwise understand from the Old Testament. Okay? That's, that's the picture that we're getting here. And if you remember the Ten Commandments, it contains the same combination of things. Vertical and horizontal relationships, right? What is my relationship with God? Have no other gods before me. Okay? Don't hurt each other. Yep, no murders, no lies, that kind of thing, okay? Vertical and horizontal relationships come from the Old Testament law, and we're seeing that represented kind of in the same way in what Jesus is saying. So it's not a surprise that those same elements are there. And it's not a coincidence that they're going to pop up in the scripture that we're talking about today. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew was a follower of Jesus. He was a a Jewish man who was working on behalf of the Roman, Roman government as a tax collector. The only way for him to make money is to charge more taxes than were actually due. Uh, so basically he had to, to shake down his own people to have a, a high standard of living. The richer he is, the more he's shaken down his own people to get there. That's the guy we're talking about who eventually converts and comes to follow Jesus. He's writing this story of Jesus and he says the following, or quotes Jesus as saying, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, did you catch it? I, you all caught the golden rule. I know you picked that right out, right? Like you learn that and do the pledge and you learn the golden rule when you're in elementary school. So we, I saw that part. But like, did, did, you, did you catch what it's attached to? Listen to it again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It shows up there. The law and the prophets shows up in this, in this golden rule that, we, that Jesus talks about. Now, th- there's many things as part of this discussion that the average Jew sitting and listening to Jesus would probably be offended about. Okay? I, I'm hesitant, though. Their reaction would be when he says, this is the law and the prophets. So here's the deal. The law and the prophets is basically 
this. That's the law and the prophets, all right? Jesus says, uh, uh, hey, the law and the prophets are basically this one sentence here. Your average Jewish boy, eight-year-old, would have worked to learn the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, by the time they were eight, memorized it. And Jesus just gave him the index card version. If I'm the eight-year-old Jew, I'm like, where was the index card version when I was like seven? Okay? See the size of that? So anyway, uh, one of the many things that stands out to a Jew at the time of what Jesus is saying. So what's interesting when we talk about the Law and the Prophets is the Sermon on the Mount is bracketed by this concept. And, and when you think Law and the Prophets, if, 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 you're, if you're not familiar, you're wondering kind of where that's coming from, just think the way God has interacted with his people prior to Jesus, okay? And what Jesus is trying to teach him is to help them understand how he fits into that perspective, okay? How does Jesus tie into these things that God has already revealed to his people? That's the law and the prophets. Okay, Matthew five seventeen, which is near the beginning of the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And on the other side here, where we find kind of the end point of Jesus' direct discipleship teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he ends the, and brings the Law and the Prophets up again. I think that's we're bracketing the primary teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with this thought of Law and Prophets. And the thing is, Jesus seems to think this is an important concept. This is something that we, we tend to dismiss, right? Law and Prophets. Oh, New Testament people. We're Jesus people. This went over here. Okay? Jesus seems to think this is important. Here, one of the reasons I think that's the case is that he's talking to these Jewish people who, who are familiar very much with this old, this old story. Okay, it's actually their current story of interacting with God. And the thing is, is that one of the things that contributes to getting Jesus killed is religious folks who refuse to move on to this element of the story. And so Jesus is kind of hammering this a little bit. Like, I, I'm fulfilling the law and the prophets. Okay, this is important. This all ties together. I want you to see this as one continual grand story, grand narrative of God. And those that refuse to make that switch, that refuse to understand what Jesus is doing, they're the same ones that are like, this guy's a heretic, burn him. Okay, that's what Jesus is up against when he's talking about it in this way. Let's take a look at the golden rule. This is not the first time that we've seen this concept in the Bible. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I love that section of Leviticus, by the way. There's a bunch of I am the Lord statements. I mean, there's authority behind that, right? This is, this is how things should be. I am the Lord. Now, I gave this a try at home. It doesn't work near in the same way i'm like the hallway shall be vacuumed i am dad <laughs> nothing <laughs> where's the vacuum so uh, it's, 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 i have no authority like jesus brings us so I, I bring nothing to the table so i i am the lord this concept of loving your neighbor as yourself is not a new concept even to god's people okay it, it happened before it's also not the last time that you're going to hear this jesus is asked but again, the same religious folks that are like, you're not the guy, there's no connection in this story, P- put him on the cross. Okay? This same group of guys is like, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You catch them? Two references, right? What did we see in that? Love God... Vertical relationship, love people, horizontal relationship, same, same theme there. Also, there's our law and the prophets, okay? Two of the things that we've been seeing through the text so far are coming back up in the things that Jesus is saying to the teachers of the law, the ones that are like, this is, this is not the guy. And this, this golden rule thought process doesn't even end with Jesus. Uh, Paul, 
Paul was, a, uh, was in that group. He's the group of guys that says, Jesus isn't the dude. Okay? Paul has an encounter with Jesus after he's died, while he's, while he's walking on a road to the city of Damascus, and it changes everything. That's the truth, guys. Running into Jesus changes everything. That's the truth. So Paul goes from the guy that says, Jesus is not the guy, to Jesus is definitely the guy. And this is Paul writing to a group of Christians in Rome, and he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see what Paul's done there? He's taken these moral guideposts, these things where we say, these are good, these are good. This is what you do to be good. And he said, you may, you would be all levels of righteousness attached to these things that we said don't do so you didn't do them but if they lack love you have nothing they are rooted in love jesus brother james and here's the deal if i try to convince my brother that i was god i feel like that would be difficult but jesus has succeeded with his brother james and he wrote to encourage christians he says if you really fulfill he calls it the royal law i like that the law come down from the king the royal law According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. It's from James 2.8. We also see iterations of this golden rule philosophy outside of the Bible. One of Jesus' contemporaries is a rabbi named, uh, named Hillel. And he was challenged by a Gentile to teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one leg. Now, that should give you pause. That's all right. Because that's a weird request. Okay? Answer, answer my questions on one leg. Now, there's no context here, right? He could be a one-legged man. That's possible. He could have a weird deal with flamingos. I, I don't know. There's no, there's no context here, right? But that's, that was his question. Teach me the whole, whole Torah on one leg. Rabbi Hillel says, Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Now that kind of sniffs of the golden rule, right? But what's the difference? It's in the negative. It's in the negative. Don't do what you want uh, do you wouldn't want other people to, to do to you versus do what you want other people to do to you. Although not exclusively, many of the iterations of the gold rule or something close to it from history or tradition are listed in the negative. Not all, but most. Okay? Jesus lists here firmly in the positive. Now here's the thing. There's a, there's a thing that people have who are trying to, to make, it, make me feel like I shouldn't believe in Jesus because they say things like, yeah, but, but, but Jesus wasn't the first guy to say that. Look at all these other worldly things, worldly people that have said something very similar to the golden rule. Is Jesus the first guy to say something like that? I, probably not. Probably not. It's a pretty solid bit of worldly wisdom, right? But Jesus is in the business of restoration. Jesus is in the business of taking the things of this world and say, here's how I can redeem them and here's how's how they work. Okay? So whether Jesus was the first iteration of this is irrelevant to me. But I want you to think of two things with this golden rule attached to Jesus. The first one is, no one before or after him has the authority that Jesus has to call us to this level of self-sacrifice. They simply don't. There isn't anyone that can speak with the level of authority that Jesus does to say, you need to give up everything of yourself and, and, and treat other people in the same way that you would treat yourself. Okay? No one has that level of authority to call you that because no man whose mouth has spitted those words out has done that completely himself, where Jesus has. Secondly, the coining of the phrase golden rule comes from around uh, the, the 3rd century AD. It's around 220 or so. And it was a Roman emperor, Alexander Severus. He was not a Christian. 
But he was reportedly so impressed with these words of Jesus, listed in the positive as a maxim for good living, that he had it written in gold on the wall of his chamber. Eh? Golden rule. There you go. I love it. So, one of the things that we have to be careful of is, 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 is there's, there's this conversation that goes on that says, well, well maybe Jesus was the original. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay? It makes sense. He's used it. He's taken a bit of wisdom and he's able to sum up how we understand the interaction between God and his people prior to Jesus' time in that maxim. All right. So, what are we supposed to do with this golden rule? Like we're generally familiar with it, right? Like I said, you're taught this thing. It makes sense for most people. That's why it, you see it used as a maxim outside of the Bible. It doesn't work, by the way. It doesn't work as a maxim outside of the Bible. Like, there's a reason it fits within this context. It's an ideal, but it, does, it doesn't work in practice because humanity is involved in it. Okay, but what are we supposed to do with it? Here's one of the things that I was thinking about that this week because I thought golden rule. Everybody knows the golden rule. That's what you're supposed to do. Done. We'll move on to something else. But... I found something interesting in the scripture this week. Let's see if you guys see it too. Most of the Sermon on the Mount has been Jesus showing us what it's like to live in his kingdom. Okay, what it's like to follow him. And that identity is given from the king's perspective, right? Jesus is, Jesus is looking out and saying, here's, here's what our identity is. Here's what my people are to look like. And like I said, that identity is given, uh, is a gift to people. Uh, I've shared this example before, but like there's, a, there's in, in antiquity, there's an example of a guy and he wrote this thing out. It's like, it's huge, seven to ten pages long. And it's basically called the prayer to any god. It's because these deities that these that people were worshiping, like they didn't communicate. Like they didn't say, "Here's what I desire. Here's here's who we are as a people." Okay, they were just. He thought he was making one of them mad. So he'd like, if I went seven steps when I was supposed to go two, please forgive me. If if I was supposed to go north but I went west, please forgive me. It's seven pages long of this guy who's like a prayer to any god to help me with my circumstance. Our God gives identity. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is what I want. It's a gift. We need to be careful how we react to things like Old Testament law. And Jesus is saying, this is how, this is how we are to live. Because that's a gift. We just don't realize it so much. We don't look at it in the right perspective. All right, what are we supposed to do with it, though? Uh, Jesus' summation of this, of this law, he does something odd. He talked about all these things as the perspective of the king, but he switches perspectives here. He says, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Who's in that equation? I am. I am. He puts this in our perspective. And to be honest, I was thinking about it this week and I thought, that's, that's kind of foolish. Yeah, he's kind of foolish, right? Like these, We're the people that we're not doing the things we were supposed to do, that can't keep the oath, that keep divorcing our, our, our spouses, that are cheating people, that are not praying for the people that are, that are persecuting us. Like we're the guys that needed the things he just said. And then after all that, he sums it up and says, by the way, do unto others as you would want done unto you. He puts it in our perspective. I'm like, why? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I think, I think he's reminding us that we're humans. And that our neighbors, they're humans too. See, Jesus is fully aware of our humanity. He knows our limits. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. He not only created humanity, he became a human he can certainly sympathize with your experience, okay? He understands your humanity. But if we take everything that we learn in the Sermon on the Mount and we divorce it from the actual love of our neighbor, we miss it. We miss it. And I, I, I don't mean we miss some of it. I don't mean, well, we're pretty close, but we're not getting it quite right. No, we missed all of it, completely. Sometimes we use 
the teachings of Jesus, whether it be in the Sermon on the Mount or otherwise, as moral whips, encouraging our neighbors to be better so that we may love them. The problem is that that is the complete opposite of how God loves us. I know how it happens. Like I, I get it. It's, it's backed in good intention. We look at these things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and we trust that they are right, that they are good and beneficial. And we see someone struggling with life, with, with identity, with who they are, and, and they, maybe they have rough times in their life and they, maybe they brought them on themselves. And we think if only they would do these things that Jesus said, their life would be different. And so we tell them to act differently. And we, we fight for laws that will make them act differently. We try to influence them within our own power. Get through an encouragement or the opposite, disappointment or, or guilt. And the whole time we think we're loving them. Helping them to understand what's best for them. But to accomplish these things, we generally stop listening to them. It's not a conversation if you're the only one talking. It's a soliloquy. And I don't know, Hamlet ran into trouble for that. We tend to ignore the basic human desire to be understood. To be treated as a human. We label people. We, we put them in, in boxes. We act like we know who they are. Perhaps it's because of how they dress, their position on a particular social issue, uh, who they voted for. I do that. I've got to knock that off. I see a guy, he, he's got a, got a bumper sticker for some guy who didn't win the election from like eight years ago. And you're like, come on, dude, I know who you are. Okay? We do that. We put labels on people. And social media has made it even worse. We, we label them from when we knew them 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, that's the guy. I just became friends with that guy. He's this dude. Those are our labels. But when we reduce people down to that type of label or category, we strip them of their humanity, of their identity, and we turn them into a caricature. I hate it when people do that to me. I don't know how you couldn't. There have been people who have taken the name Christian or the banner of Christian and treated people in a way that was devoid of love. As if people were simply a moral wrong to be righted. And now if I tell someone that I am a Christian, I have to bear the burden of those looks and assumptions about what I think of people. I don't like people putting words in my mouth. I don't like people putting thoughts into my head. I don't like people putting hate into my heart when it doesn't reflect at all what I say, think, or feel. We become so concerned about putting people into categories, defining who they are, assuming what they say, think, or feel, that we miss the middle. We miss their story. We miss how they got where they are. We miss where they hope to go. And this is the big one. We miss the opportunity to introduce another human being to the one who created them. The one whose image and likeness they personally bear. I think that's one of the things Jesus is concerned about here. It's one of the risks that we run with moral teaching is that it comes out devoid of the love that Jesus has behind it, but that we sometimes drop. That same Paul who met Jesus on the road to Damascus writes to a, a church in Corinth that he started, the city of Corinth, and he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Look at these two parameters that he's given us here. One says... If I can do anything in the world, okay, I can do all these magical things. That's what I bring to life. If they are not rooted in love, then there is nothing. And on the other hand, Paul was talking about if you do all these moral things, these things that we think show that we are good people, if we knock them down by, like bowling pins and they are not rooted in love, then we have nothing. 
Love's the common denominator in that story. Without love, nothing. And to be sure, we do not worship love. Too many people make that choice, that mistake. We worship God alone. We cannot, cannot exalt love in whatever form above He who created it. It has to live within that context. But God not only created love, but He came to us in love and died for us because of love and summed up that which describes our identity in Him as love for both Him and our neighbors. And that which our God invests so fully in, we cannot take lightly. If we point a man to righteousness, but not to Jesus, we have failed. Jesus orients the golden rule from our perspective because we seem to be prone to beg God to remember our humanity while often forgetting the humanity of our neighbor. And you know what? It seems that in our culture today, it is those who are not the people of God who seem to grasp this love of neighbor far better than we do. Christians want to lament the direction of our society. We want to be upset about the choices people make, how poorly things are going when people turn from God. And you know what? I agree. I agree with that. How could it turning from your, your almighty God? How could it not? But the thing is, is that people go to where they're loved. People go to where they're treated with dignity, where they're listened to. I can't speak for all societies at all times. But I'm pretty confident I can speak for this one. That the rest of society is often doing that job much better than the church. And it should not be. It should not be. They're pointing to an inferior story. If I believe God is who he says he is, then, then what they're pointing people to for an identity is inferior to the one that God offers. And the, the love that, we're, that they're offering, although it is what they seek, it is, it is less than the love that God has to offer. It is an inferior story. And yet, because we can't get to the point where we are actively loving our neighbor before they've done all the things that we think God should have them do, before they've attained whatever righteousness we believe that we have, before they've done any of those things, if we can't love our neighbor purely, we miss everything. It doesn't mean those other things aren't true. It just means that we miss everything else if we are devoid of that. And we don't even get to be part of the conversation. We like the moral whip. And not the love that says, I love you. And God says, I love you. Here's why I want my people not to do these things. Because it will destroy you. You understand the difference? You understand where we're missing part of that conversation? Now listen to me. I am not. I am not asking you to condone sin. And I am not asking you to call something good that God does not. That's just as foolish. But what I am saying is that Christians should love people better than anybody else. And I mean anybody else. Because that's what Christ has done for us. And the truth is, is whatever love that we can give them as Christians, God even does better. He has even more to offer. Love God, love people. That's our, that's our church model, right? That's our deal. Love God, love people, serve both. When we complicate any of those things, we get ourselves into trouble. Love God, love people better than anyone else. And let God do the rest. That's why I think he's oriented that golden rule in our perspective. That's an odd thing for him to do here. But I think we need that reminder. I do. You with a bumper sticker. Jesus continues. Enter by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This follows the golden rule. Depends on what Bible you have as to how they have this kind of segmented. You know, a lot of Bibles have headers as to the section. Um, This actually could go pretty evenly with, I think, both what comes before, what Jesus has already taught, and what follows this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is kind of stopping. He's ending his, this is what it looks like to be a disciple type of stuff. And he's moving into, um, here's, here's how you can get called away. Here's how you can get distracted and moved into somewhere where I did not call you to. And here's the, here's the temptations that follow with that. Okay, so I think this could very well um, fit with that because it's judgment language. That's, we're going to have to deal with that. This is a judgment language. There is a narrow road. There is a wide road. Narrow road leads to freedom. Wide road leads to destruction. That's a, that's a distinction. That's judgment language. The Bible uses that. Jesus uses that. There's sheep, there are goats. Okay? There, there are black and white distinctions. You have to, you call King Lord, or you call Jesus King, or you do not. Okay? There is a distinction there. But it's, it's interesting that I actually think this narrow road thought casts back upon the things that Jesus already said pretty well too. Because if you look at the things that Jesus is calling us to in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, those are narrow road things. Those are narrow road, few people things. No, see, normal people don't forego retaliation and turn the other cheek. I mean, who acts like that? Normal people don't pray for the restitution, for the salvation, for the eternal forgiveness of those that have treated them poorly, okay? of those that persecute them, who acts like that? The answer? We do. We do. Tom Dace was a, um, was a Christian guy. He, he went to a church in, uh, in the South, uh, probably mid-30s guy. Uh, he went to a prayer breakfast with the, with the fellas in the morning on a Saturday morning, came back home and had some work to do that he was going to do in the house. He fires up the saw. He's got, he's got big work to do. Okay? Tom's got big work, fires up the saw. His neighbor's drunk. Well, hungover from the night before. Here's this loud ruckus, comes out and starts arguing with Tom. Tom tries to calm him down. A uh, guy eventually kills Tom, beats him with a hammer. Dead. Pretty easy case, shut and dry. A guy gets convicted and goes to prison. Tom's wife takes her husband's Bible and goes to the prison and meets with this man that killed her husband with a hammer. And she takes the Bible in and she says, you stole something very precious to me. And you owe me to read this. This was his Bible. It is now yours. I want you to read it. Man that killed Tom Days reads that Bible and becomes a Christian. Tom's wife even writes to the parole board years later to get the man out of jail, advocates that he be freed. And that man who killed another Christian man with a hammer is doing prison ministry yet today. That is the narrow road. John Wesley was the... Um, one of the founders of the Methodist Church. He came from a very poor family. He had lots of kids. Dad was a pastor, didn't make very much money. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, there's a story about, about the mom. The mom had so many kids around. There's nowhere to go if you want any type of personal time. And she did like a, a one-hour devotional every morning. And because there was nowhere to go, she would just take her apron, flip it over her head, and read and pray for an hour. Okay, that, was, that was Mama Wesley. Um, must be doing something to produce some, some very, very astute uh, Bible teachers and men of the faith. So, um, so anyway, he goes into the pastorate, John Wesley does, and uh, he was afraid he was going to not make any more money like his dad, but he ends up landing a gig at, at Oxford College teaching. And uh, he does pretty well. He's making 30 pounds a year. That's a, a man can get by pretty well on 30 pounds a year in the late 1700s, okay? So um, he's, he's decorating his office one day, and the chambermaid comes in uh, to, to clean up the place. And uh, 
he looks at her as he's trying to hang this picture, and she's, she's shivering. She's cold. She doesn't have much, to, much on. Um, all, the only thing besides her basic uniform is this real thin sheet of linen that she has. And he reaches into his pocket to, to give her some money so that she can buy something else, and he finds that he has none in there. And he thinks to himself, Lord, this cannot be. How can I be hanging pictures, adornments, in my office while there's a, a woman here cold, and I, and I have no money to help? I'm, I, this is not being a good steward. God will not say, well done, good and faithful steward. This cannot be. And so there, he changes how he deals with money. That year, he made 30 pounds. His expenses were 28 pounds. He gave away two. Uh, the next year, his income doubled. He's good at what he does. He makes 60 pounds. He spends 28 on his expenses. He gives away 32. Following year, income improves. He's got 90 pounds. He keeps 28 to pay his expenses. He gives away 62. Following year, 120 pounds. Keeps 28. Gives 92. See, Wesley believes, and what Jesus taught is that their income rises. It is not our standard of living, but our standard of giving that grows. See, at times, John Wesley made over 1,400 pounds. He kept getting more and more popular, kept bringing in more and more money. He lived on 30. He's getting a little extravagant, this guy. New pair of socks for John. Okay? But he gave away almost 1,400 pounds. In fact, <laughs> from the amount of money he was bringing in, the ta- you know he's going to bring out the tax man. Tax man says, hey man, I know you have silver that you're not claiming. I know there's, you've got to have silver somewhere that you're not telling us about so that we don't tax it. So they write to him and say, you need to give us a full accounting of the silver, the eatery that you have, so that we can tax it appropriately. And uh, he writes back to the tax authority and says, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many around me want for bread. That is the narrow road. It's John, a man who taught Islamic theology, whose father was in the Taliban. John is making the pilgrimage to to Mecca, as a a Muslim would. Uh, And he's walking one night, and he has a dream of a man with a shining face, and he has shining white clothes, and he says, My son, I see that you are seeking after me, but the real faith is not in Mecca. Also, I am not here. And this dream kind of frightens the guy a little bit. Um... But he, he continues on the pilgrimage and he starts to see some hypocrisy in the way some of this is going down. Even, even if you were Muslim, some of the stuff that goes on um, in, in how money is being changed and how money is being used and focused on in some of these religious pilgrimage things. And he's like, this is not right. This is not focused on what it should be focused on. Um, he, he, he decides to leave early. He doesn't stay the whole time, but camps on his way back home and he dreams again. And in the dream, there's a man running towards him. Or he runs towards a man that's standing on a white stone on a hill. And he goes up to this man and he says, who are you? Relax, says the man. I want to talk to you because I love you. If I tell you who I am, you will lose seven things. You will lose Quran and Muhammad. You will lose your parents. You will lose the child that you love. You will lose your relatives and everyone will hate you. You will lose your wealth. You will be homeless and they will drive you from your country. If you don't accept the loss of these seven things, you won't be able to find me anymore. Before you were born, I had plans for you. What is your choice? In the dream, John says, if you tell me your name, I will believe in you. I am your God, Jesus replied. I am Jesus Christ. That day, John leaves his pilgrimage and he goes to tell his Taliban father who threatens to burn him, his wife, and his child if he does not renounce Jesus. He refuses. He's kept in a dungeon for 18 months and repeatedly beat in an attempt to get him to deny Christ. His captors let loose poisonous snakes. snakes. Um, they, they send a wild dog down there loose in the dungeon. They even tried to crucify him upside down, but somehow never succeeded in causing any serious harm to John. 
He was finally released and his dad sent him home and said, do not tell anyone about Jesus. Eager to tell his wife, he heads home and his wife stops him when he comes into the door and she says, John, I have something to tell you. I had many dreams while you were gone. Dreams where this, this Jesus came to me telling me that you would come home. See, while John was captive, his wife came to know Jesus. Behind his father's back, John begins telling his family about Jesus. His mother, his sisters, aunts, and cousins all begin to follow Jesus. When the couple refuses to give their yet-to-be-born child an Islamic name, the Taliban father beats John's wife and throws them both back into prison. Understanding that they will not renounce Christ, the Taliban orders John's father to kill both of them. The couple escapes, but they have to leave their two-year-old son behind. In late 2013, after being on the run for a number of months in another country, they receive word that they are to return to Afghanistan and recant their Christian faith or their two-year-old son would be killed. John tries very hard. He talks to the, the local embassy. He petitions the UN, but he's too late. On October 4, 2013, their two-year-old son is killed by the Taliban. And the picture is posted on their website as evidence. Within weeks, John's mother, sisters, and cousins were also killed. John continues to tell people about Jesus, using the internet to minister to Afghans around the world, including his former students. He leads hours of internet worship services every week in small groups. He and his remaining family have found refuge in a Western country. They, they were talking to him recently, and he says, Every second I work for God. I lost everything. So I want to tell people about Jesus. That is the narrow road. It's the husband who loves his wife more than life itself. Who takes every opportunity to build his wife up, to put her above himself. That, just like Jesus did, that is the narrow road. It's the person who can actually be taken at their word. Their yes is a yes. Their no is a no. No good intentions, no false promises, no, oh, hey, I'm sorry. That's the narrow road. It's the single man or single woman that forsakes that which our whole culture is obsessed with. Sex and sexuality and sexual gratification. To serve God in a way that those that are married with children cannot do. That is the narrow road. It's the parents who already have a house full of children. Who are in their time of life when most parents are in the process of planning to kick kids out. Who respond to the call of God's people to care for the orphan by adopting another one. And loving it as their own. And that child is 1,600 miles and $20,000 away. And maybe that child needs extensive medical care. And after all that's done, after they've answered that, they answer that call again. Not for another child, but for another two children. That is the narrow road. Here's the thing. The narrow road isn't an event. It's not a place where we show up, celebrate, take a picture and a selfie and head out this is where we live this is the path that we walk it's a narrow road and there aren't a lot of other people on it see most of the world would look at some of these examples that we just talked through and say holy cats those people are crazy but they're not crazy we're not crazy we're Christians these aren't the types of things that good Christians do these aren't the types of things that special Christians do. These are the types of things that all Christians do. If we look at these things and understand them rightly, we retain the perspective of how countercultural and flat out crazy what Christ did on the cross. Within our limitations, we are called to the same thing. If we accept what our society calls normal, that a 
There's a wide road and there is no crazy. And we believe that's what following Jesus is. Then we run the serious risk of understanding his sacrifice as commonplace as well. Be careful here. Be careful with what I'm saying. We don't look at all these examples as a righteousness that buys us into heaven. It is a reflection of the love and sacrifice of the king that we serve. The point isn't to get shined up and show God how impressive we are. But we need to understand that these things that Jesus is preaching, these examples that we're talking about today are natural consequences of following a king who does the same thing. That's what I alluded to earlier when I said, I, I, I no longer think that this Sermon on the Mount section is just about Jesus giving us the identity of those that are in the kingdom. It does something else. The kingdom is a reflection of he who rules it, which means through the Sermon on the Mount, we are also being introduced to the king himself. Check it this week. It's Matthew 5 to 7. Read it again. Okay? Read it and see how many of these things were demonstrated in the life of Christ himself. Praying for his enemies when they hung him on the cross. They killed this man. They hung him to die and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. That's love. He turns the other cheek literally as they beat him. He's true to every one of his words and promises. He relies on the Father for provision during times of temptation. He asks, he seeks, he knocks and watches God provide. That's the narrow road. Jesus walks it. He is it. And in this world, you will do crazy things as a consequence of following Jesus. If you don't find yourself every once in a while going, Oh man, look what Jesus has gotten me into. Then I'd be hesitant as to who you're following. If you look at your life circumstance and and realize that there's a crowd of people that look just like you, have a very similar life, you may have wandered onto the wide road. We are not crazy. Despite what you've heard, we're Christians. And if we are to understand who Jesus is correctly and to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, we should be out reflecting that accusation so that we can tell the story of Jesus through it. Let's pray.